Hi guys and welcome to another Take Charge podcast and we've got a fantastic special guest with us today and good friend of ours, Chris Trott, who is Director of Global Tours, Global Sports Marketing at TaylorMade. Now Chris has been working for TaylorMade for the last 13 years on tour, fitting some of the best players in the world from Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Justin Rose to name a few. What we're going to do is pick uh, Chris's brains on some of the stories and some of the things that the players like to see on tour. We're going to be talking about technology used in fitting and ultimately some discussions on how fitting can help your game. It's a fantastic podcast. We're really excited about this one. Hope you enjoy. So Chris, welcome to the Take Charge podcast. It's great to have you on. Um, now before we um, get into the podcast, we've known each other now for, I was working this out yesterday, nearly 15 years when we did the PJ together. Too long. Too long, far too long. <laughs> um, so just talk a little bit about your background story and sort of what's brought you to where you are now. So obviously, Piers Proudy, thanks for, uh, thanks for having us on. Mm-hmm. Obviously when you asked me, it was, uh, I was excited about it. Good, I love what you guys are doing. Thank you. Um, and I, think it's, I know this is something you've wanted to get into for a long time. We've talked about it for a long time. As you say, we, we've known each other a long time and met in lots of different places since you guys left uh, left the range you were working at so <laughs> so as you say known each other a long time and um, I was very fortunate to get into this side of the business through um, where we met which was the Belfry there was a club fitting centre there and um, one day I was working with uh, doing a launch a product launch which TaylorMade do and have done over the years and uh, I think it was as far back as 300 series and obviously you guys remember mm-hmm. that but yeah. With the different models and um, the day set up and we had these fitting suites and I was in there working away, crowd of maybe 40 people, VIPs from the UK I assume and Europe and uh, I took the lead and ran through this, this fitting day and it was, it was great, it was good fun, it went well and halfway through the day um, McGinley was there, Paul McGinley was hitting shots so I was demoing with McGinley he would hit the shots. We were working on a, an Achiever launch monitor that was yeah, one yeah. of the early launch monitors, um, which, you know, they, they started into that. It was good for, for retail and for consumers. And basically, there was a guy who I think was in charge, is Tom Olofsky, he was in charge of uh, product creation, Metalwoods at TaylorMade Carlsbad. I didn't know him at the time. We're going back 13, 14, 15, we're going back longer than that, 16, 18 years. And, uh, I've taken charge of this day and, and ran this event thinking that was what I was meant to do. And halfway through the day, um, this guy, Tio, that we call him, comes up to me and, and sort of says, hey, just so you know, this comment you made about the 360, that might be... And I looked at him and was sort of thinking, right, okay, how does this guy know this? Day carries on. And uh, the sales rep was there as well. And I said to him at the end of the day, I said, that guy came and spoke to me and a few, few interesting questions. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he was meant to run the day. And I was like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll right, it's my, it's my fitting suite. There I am as this sort of PGA trainee finishing <laughs> up. It's my fitting suite. <laughs> he goes, yeah, but he's product creation for TaylorMade and invented all the metal woods that you sell every week. I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. So, so that developed, and the reason that that one was important is because, like I mentioned, McGinley was there, who's a, a really good guy, and back then was winning at Wales Open and things like that. It was actually pre that, but was a good tour player. And Paul's very close at the time with a lot of people at TaylorMade. And Paul went away and spoke to a guy called Ian Watts who went on to call me the following week. And actually, he didn't call me. He booked in for a fitting session at the Belfry. Turns up, I fit him at the time for a driver with a grapholoid shaft in it, which was made by wow. True Temper. And yeah. basically, uh, 
he finishes the session by saying, oh, uh, interesting, you know, uh, you fit me for the driver that I already own. And we were on commission back then, and we were earning not a lot of money, and obviously not a lot of commission. And I'm thinking, Jesus, what's this guy doing now? I fit him for the driver already owns. I, I just need to get my sort of four quid commission or whatever it was. <laughs> it's like, any chance we can, you know, move this on? And uh, can I sell you something else? And he's like, oh, I don't need anything else. And I was like, oh, right, okay, fair enough. He's Irish, if you didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. He goes, uh, I've come to offer you a job. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? So obviously I'm trying to brush him out the room. And uh, he's like, no, no, I've come to offer you a job. I, I want to talk to you about, Paul McGinley sent me, I want to talk to you about this, this, and this. And obviously I was blown away. And then I finished my PGA training, I think from somewhere like the South African Open or something like that. I literally, within three weeks, I was out doing 12 weeks on the European tour. And that was when the European tour, which it still does now, started in SA, then went to Australia, then moved to Singapore. Then, so I literally did the, the whole of my probation period at TaylorMade was out on ranges with tour players whilst trying to finish my PGA. So it was good. And then from there, um, you learn a lot, you move along. I, I actually, as you guys know, wanted to play. So, and I told the guys at TaylorMade that at the start and I left and went back to try and play. Um, managed to get sort of as far as challenge tour and realised it was really difficult. Had I mean, three or four weeks of it then and decided Basically, to good. sort of 12 days at it. I was like, <laughs> yeah, this is no good. <laughs> so I did it for about a year and a half and uh, Ian Watts was kind enough to keep my role open for me. Whether that showed he had zero confidence in me as a player, probably, I don't know. <laughs> realised that coming back to Taylor May was the right thing to do. Came back and then spent seven, eight years in Europe, which became you know, a home for me, effectively, the European tour, great fun, great people, great cultures, great food, different conditions, which I'm sure we'll talk about to fit products. TaylorMade was certainly booming as we grew to be a dominant number one in, in tour golf that then drove sales, got to work and meet some great people. You guys developed a lot more with what you were doing. Some friends of mine as well became good coaches. And it just became a great place to work week in, week out. And you got yourself in a nice rhythm, traveling from Heathrow to wherever. Um, and then an opportunity as the tours merged a little more with the Asian tour came about to, to go and, and run Asia Sports Marketing for TaylorMade. And, you know, I'd been very keen to, to do a little bit more and get a bit more into that side of the business. So took the opportunity and uh, went out to live in Hong Kong. And uh, as you guys know, when you came out there, I think it was one of your early Take Charge tours. 2012, 12, yeah. There you yeah, go. Yeah. So you were, you were up there staying in Causeway Bay and, and we connected <laughs> and we're like, look guys, you should probably come and stay in my place. To which you did. It <laughs> was a good move, that was that Yeah, one. it was a good move and we had a good time. Um, and I mean, that, uh, that city alone, I mean, we could, we could talk about that city alone for, mm. for an hour and a half, I'm sure. Great experience, as you know, ran Asia, got to spend a lot of time in, in Pacific as well, which is Australia, which again, I know that was part of that trip for you. Fantastic, mm -hmm. great fun. A lot of time in China, met a lot of good players as the China tour emerged. And then TaylorMade bought um, Adams Golf, and I was offered the role there to move over to the States, which is something that I'd wanted to do from, from day one. And, and that goes, goes back to the goals I set, which we joke about it, but as a player, you know, mm -hmm. if I'd have ever been anything I'd have wanted to have been in the States and just through I've pretty much gone about my work career and similar goals to what I had as a player yeah. it, 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 as much as they can cross over and came to the States and, and now I've managed to get in here and uh, I'm doing international tours out of the US which is regions and how we spend and how we line up the strategy which has been great still with day-to-day -day stuff the hands-on stuff which 
keeps it back to the core of what I love, which is golf and what we're all here for to talk about, to, to work with some great players on the PGA Tour and the best in the game at some of the best events. And obviously I've got that international connection now with a lot of the foreign guys to the US that I work with week in, week out. And then just taking on new projects, I think as we move into 2018 with different product lines here in Carlsbad that will run out on PGA Tour. So I'll be doing a lot more travel next year on that tour, but that's uh, that's really a quick not a quick summary of how I came about to get into this. Yeah, there's a lot in there, isn't there? Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's amazing watching you develop over these years as well, <clears throat> and your thoughts on how the job works and how you deal with players as well. And so, so I suppose for us, you know, what what is an, and everybody listening, what does a normal working week look like for you, and what sort of players are you actually dealing with? Are you, you know, when you're out on tour? Yeah, I mean, over the years, the working week has changed purely because of the geography of where you're traveling from. Mm -hmm. And I think that, obviously, we're European, but living and working the European tour is quite a simple travel in, in terms of logistics. You know, yes, there's different languages, and yes, there's smaller airports to, to combat and different airlines, but culturally, we know who the airlines are, mm -hmm. we know our way around those countries, and you get it done. So you can start early on Mondays and you can get out of there Wednesday because we don't work during the tournament week. All the work we do is before the tournament, unless it's at somewhere like the Open Championship or the Ryder Cup and, and we'd stay a little bit longer because mm -hmm. the trucks need to be on site. But it, at these events, certainly back in Europe at that time, there was an official workshop that would take any breakages during the week, which I know we, we get good view of now with guys snapping clubs against trees through no fault of their own, just poor shots <laughs> or whatever, and they're in that situation. So you're in before the players get there and you leave before the tournament starts. It's all preparation, which gives the players their space to, to work and focus on the event. And it gives us the opportunity to come back, offer the marketing team anything that they will need, reorganize um, ourselves for the following week and move on. Then you go and live in somewhere like Asia and it, it becomes different because it's, it's a much bigger place. It's far more like the United States in terms of travel. It takes longer to get from Hong Kong to, to Delhi, so to say, and then there's different requirements in each market you go to. Um, and, and me going there with the history I had working on the European tour, there was an opportunity in that role to then expand your knowledge out to, shall we say, club fitters in Australia or the market in Korea or do a service day with maybe a local Indonesian star that we, we did a few times there in that market. So you'd extend the trip out or you'd, you'd change the trip for that and obviously the teams grow and the people that you're working with on your side grow. So they still do the nuts and bolts servicing week in, week out, but the dynamic of what I did at that time changed. And then you come to the States and it, it's much more of a Obviously, it's a huge service place here, yeah. but again, it's far more dependent on where the tournament locations are in Sunday night, out Wednesday before the tournament starts, and it's you know intense working on product as, as we look to bring out some new product here in the early part of next year. So certainly between Hawaii through to Augusta will be you know, every week in, week out, getting people dialed in and getting people happy for each tournament week. So that often happens at the beginning of the season. You're with people. If there's new product there, they, you know, you're making sure that they're, you know, you want them to use it, obviously, but they need to be happy that they're going to use it and it's going to improve them because creatures of habit, they don't really want to change their clubs, do they, if it works well? <clears throat> I think, yeah, in some ways and over years, I think we've got better at that as a company and I think that the athletes have got better at understanding the requirements on them as athletes and I also think that 
products have evolved. I think engineers have evolved. I think the way in which we measure products has evolved. Mm -hmm. I think the teachers have evolved. I think the fact, you know, just as an example that we're sat here talking about this with you guys, that's evolved. There's a yeah. different channel for everyone to get into golf and understand what it does. So when you sort of say, hey, look, there's some challenges to getting clubs in, there are, but on the same note, no longer is it just my opinion to say to a player, yeah. hey, I think this club setup works better for you. You know, now it, it, it's my responsibility to work with that player, proving, validating what we're doing with a launch monitor. If there's a coach involved, we can look visually through a camera. We've all obviously got the detail, then come back and report to engineers if we need to make any serious changes on stuff, which early on in the season, there may be a couple of things, but the product is all tested before it goes out on tour pretty thoroughly. So we're in a good place there. So, so I think that it, in answer to the question, is it tricky? Yes, but you know, I, I'm well dialed in as to how to get clubs yeah. in play for the role I do, as are my colleagues, as are my competitors at other companies. So we know, and, and it, there's, you know, there are way, the, every club that comes out is a, is a move forward. So, Plus you have, you have relationships with these guys as well, <clears> so you understand how, what they're after, knowing what they're after before you get it, so you can go with club in hand telling them exactly what it's going to do for them. Exactly, and, and you'd be amazed at how the relationships work out over the years and how they develop on. Um, for example, I was thinking about something earlier before we came in and you know, obviously I've changed around a lot of regions and that it, when you go to work Asia Pacific, it, the PGA Tour and the European Tour, uh, rightly or wrongly, there's more world rank points. There's obviously big tournaments, great players. and, and your reputation as a club fitter for what it's worth or a coach or, or a player can, can help you in those regions. But when you move around and then you come to the States and, and you work majors and stuff, you're, you're relying, as you say, on clubs that you may have got in play in certain scenarios. Mm -hmm. So I remember that I did a club for Chad Campbell back at Lytham years ago and uh, he didn't play it that week, but we formed a relationship based on the Open Championship that grew over time and and now i see him weekly on the pga tour and i know that he trusts me based on that one club that i made for him a, a windy week that he didn't use that week because it was tuesday and the tournament started thursday and it was a major but he obviously got a driver that he liked and he got a service he liked where we put the detail in that he needed and then of course you, you come to work with these players again in the u.s and the club that you're going to set up for the playoffs in Boston is going to be way different to the club that you've set yeah. up for Lither. Yeah. But of course, Chad talks and he hangs out with other players and whether it be a Stuart Sink or whether, you know, of that kind of elk and that yeah. kind of generation. And then that then passes down to, you've obviously got your relationships you form with, say, a Justin Rose or a Jason Day. And then you get a Xander Schofler who comes and sees that you're working with those guys and he wants to know what you're telling them. and before you know it, the next California kid's coming out or the next British guy's coming out mm. or the next Texan's coming out and they see who you work with and they've been practicing with these guys since they were 10, 11 years mm. old. Yeah. And he's been the hero in their state or in their county or in their golf club. And if you keep at it and you keep doing it and you don't do anything that is off the map wrong, which you don't, otherwise you wouldn't still be doing it yeah. at this level, you know, it all kind of, the reputation does help you and the relationships help you, but they go further than what you can see because people obviously talk and it, it's return, it's repeat business. It's, I often think about, 
the differences between, uh, I'll go around the world and talk to fitters and they'll be like, what's the difference between tour and what's the difference between commercial fitting? It's repeat business every week. It's like, you know, I've got uh, 200 yeah. guys that I'll see every year based on the field, maybe 250. And, you know, I, I'll see them this year, I'll see them next year. And, and until they're ready to call it a day, it's repeat business. Yeah, and the guys at home who go, let's say, going for a fitting at a range, they get to see their fitter like for an hour or two hours and don't get the chance to build the relationships like you do over the years with these tour pros. 100%, and I I think that, again, as things evolve, we touched on it with with monitors evolving and coaching evolving, but guys go for a fitting back at their local facility and they may go to the best club establishment in the area where they have no relationship at all. Um, I think some of the, the, one of the best things to do if you're in that situation is take your coach. You know, if, you, if you're serious about your game and you've got a great relationship with your coach and they can spare the time, then go as a, as a group mm-hmm. to, yeah. as a t- it, it sounds, it, it's very tourish, but go as a team and have them there with the fitter. Because straight away, you know, the fitter, unless they're asking the right questions, mm-hmm which is everything you need to do before you even get to hitting shots, then you're not gonna know what that individual wants and requires. Yeah. Or, or at least have the, I suppose if that, obviously that is the ideal world, but I think if, if they can speak to their coach about what they want the fitter to discuss and how he wants his swing to change and so on and so forth, then that's important. They can just take that information from the coach straight to the fitter as well. So. Exactly, and I think as, as things like FCT have come out and adjustable technology with the, the shafts and various things that have come about. I think one of the huge selling, fe- I was on tour at this stage, but even for me on tour, one of the huge selling features when TaylorMade came out with the movable weight technology and everything we could do with products was literally, look, you don't have to travel with three or four drivers. Because when I started, we, we sometimes we'd build two or three clubs for a player. And then you've got three or four reps ordering clubs. And in one day, you'd be building 70, 80 products, drivers. You know, you're not doing that anymore. You can build one and you can hit 30 plus different settings before you even got into changing weights or doing anything. So I think the great thing about the products today is you can buy the product, work with your coach, and if you're in the right ballpark, as you develop as a golfer and change attack angles or swing directions or paths or whatever you're working on, you can change the driver to you too. So let's, I mean, we've talked a lot about technology there and you said that you started uh, around about when the 300 series came out, which I can remember that vividly. Between then and now, technologies on clubs, um, trackman data, you know, all, this, all the technologies that sort of go into creating a good fitting has, has changed a lot. Um, how much better would you say, or how much easier is your job fitting these guys now um, with all these changes? Is, is it a lot different to what it was back then? I think it's a tough one to answer for the same reason that you get a golfer and you try and compare them from one generation to the other, or you take a basketball player or you take a soccer player, whatever you want to do. It's very difficult because back when I started and we we would travel with 70, 80 clubs to faraway places like South Africa or Australia and you'd stand there and you would be trying to dial players in. You had what you had, but the players you were working with weren't of the same level at which I'm working with now. So it was very different. But the goals at which I was going in each week were very different. Is it easier now? Um, It's a a good question, and I would probably say it's not. And the reason I would say it's not is because you have to be at the... I'm I'm literally now in the very fortunate position that I'm working with some great players week in, week out, top players. 
who are, you know, they're looking to forge their careers and they're no longer playing for money or they're, they're playing for titles and that means a lot to them. That's what they've been playing for since day dot. And maybe 10, 15 years ago, I was working with a guy who was based on, you know, I, I need to keep my card, which has the same level of difficulty because you, if a guy's trying to keep his card and there's six events left, you've got to fit him for what he wants. Again, that's another difference between tour and yeah. consumer. Consumer, you can say, hey, we need to get you launching it here and, and spinning it here and we need to work towards that. But if a tour player who's in that region of, look, I've got eight weeks to go, I've got to make this amount of cash, I like to launch it low, cut it, and I can't do anything else, and I'm at the moment hitting it left with this product, you, it's your responsibility to get them to hit it how they want so they can go and achieve yeah. what they want to achieve. So I've always taken that approach, so I think maybe it's not fair to say it's tougher now, but you will be found out a lot easier now than what you were. That is the right way to answer that yeah. because back then there was no monitor to validate if what I was doing was correct. Mm -hmm. You know, I could fit a guy, I could tip the shaft up really strong, put him in something that would be heavy, make it difficult for him to release it, get the blade really open. Now he could take that club, measure the frequency on any of the trailers, he could put it on TrackMan, check if it's changed his delivery, check if it's changed any of that. He can have his coach stand there and go through. So it's probably tougher now. So I have to make sure that everything is buttoned up and I'm on it and it's broken down. And there's been scenarios even this year where people will try and second guess you because they work for the player. Anyone that the player employs, they work for them. So they're looking for an angle if they don't know you that well and you're, they're new to that role, they're looking for an angle to perhaps make them feel justified as to why they're at the event and at the table. And obviously, I've been around this long enough to know that I've gone into those situations knowing what the swing weight is, knowing where the CG is, knowing how much you know weight I've put in what part of the golf club, knowing the exact amount of tip dip, knowing the exact dead weight, knowing the exact swing weight, knowing the width of the grip, knowing all these things when I go into that conversation. Yeah. Then we go on track, man. Then when the questions start coming, you can put the noise out so that it comes a point where if there's five or six people in that huddle trying to have an opinion, you can get rid of four yeah. and talk to one. Because <laughs> you only want to talk to one. You only yeah. want to talk to the player. The coach is super important or the caddy super important. Of course they are. But if you don't know that group and you're going in as an English guy and you're stood in Texas and they're like, who is this guy? You need to be able to control that situation. Yeah. It's a bit like if you're trying to pull the most attractive girl in a group, you've got to look after the others first. You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about there, Chris. Yeah. Um, so, so, so you're basically saying that the equipment side of things has forced you and everybody else to raise their game because it, everything really gets measured then. You can't really just say, this is the one for you because it's, I think it is. It's like, well, look, I need to know my stuff. This needs to be right because we can measure everything around it. Exactly. And yeah, I think that as a result of that, you see coaches that have come out that are a lot younger than what they were before because they've been early adapters, adopters of, you know, Trackman, for example, or GC2 correct, ran the correct way. Um, various, I'm, I'm not a teacher, so you guys could fill me in on that more, but various software packages that are the, the top level ones, they've taken them on early. They've taken social media early. They've picked up all these things. And as a result, the, the facts don't lie. Yeah. You know, I, I, I went to a seminar with James Lights, who not many people I would imagine would know, but it, he, he said something that stuck with me, which is why guess what you can measure. And I think that stands out now for anyone who is coming into anything, why guess what you can measure. And it, it stuck with me because he's right. And at the end of the day, 
you know, if I get asked a question about head weight or I get asked a question about CG, I'm now in the very fortunate position that I'm within 100 yards every Thursday, Friday that I'm off the road of an engineer who I can go and ask that to. Groove depths, mm. wedges, potters, irons, anything I need to know, it's in this building. So why would I even begin Tempt, yes. to guess? Yeah, What's guess. the point? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that obviously, obviously these players have got access to all of this information, but are there still misconceptions out there? Things that maybe even bug you a little bit? I don't think they bug me because we've, uh, we've offlined this conversation. I, I'm around every week the, the area of golf I want to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I really enjoy that. I really do, even now. And maybe that's why I still do it. So there are guys who come into the tour, but the tours are, you need to find your way as to where you sit in the tour and then you get hold of that and you go forward. There are people who come in week in, week out at different venues and and maybe they don't understand it, but fortunately I'm not dealing with them on a week in, week out basis. And, you know, if I'm in a place, in in a bar or a clubhouse and someone asks me a question about it, these questions don't bug me, and everyone's trying to learn at the end of yeah, the day. Um, are there misconceptions on it? Yeah, there are, and uh, you know you can hit balls at a range, and, and people will recognise the equipment, and they'll get talking to you, and before you know it, they, I think one of the things is, is people think they can make a change to something, a part of the golf club, that will revolutionise their game, and, and they've, they've found the next breakthrough, and all of a sudden they're going to start striping it 350. It's a bit like a guitar, right? I could change the strings on a guitar 50 times, but I'm never going to play that thing like Jimi Hendrix. It's just the way it is. The only way I'm going to get anywhere near it is if I practice. And if I practice, I come to a point where I can tell the difference between the strings on the guitar and and what type of string I'm playing. So when it comes to golf clubs, there are parts of it that you have to have in order to hit the ball. But changing parts of that week in, week out, are not going to help certain players. You have to form an opinion. You have to know what a certain swing weight feels like. You have to know what a certain length of golf club feels like for you. You have to know how do you deliver the club. Now, you don't have to be a tour player to know these things. You just have to have an idea. You have to be going out and you have to be playing golf to a standard where you're sort of 18 or below. Even an 18 handicapper knows that they like a certain wedge. Now, they might like it today on their golf course in August conditions. And they might get to February, or if they play all year round, if they're in a cool climate, and they might be like, why doesn't it work in February? This wedge that I love in August. And it's because the bunkers are different, it's because the greens are reacting differently, it's because the turf is different, and that wedge interacts with the turf differently to what it does in August. But you're at an early stage in your golf you don't realize that but it's not there are things that can help you now does every consumer have access to people that will be able to reveal that and then also pockets of cash that are going to be able to fund that maybe not but if you at least build a relationship with a good coach and a good fitter you can then get equipment that works towards the next stage i mean other sports it crosses over even if you look at something like um it's an action sport but snowboarding you know you can buy a snowboard that will cover all mountain terrain it's a very general snowboard at start and starting off with something like that as a you know a consumer an 18 handicap golfer is where you need to be but there'll be things about that golf club things about that snowboard that you like and then you look as you advance to put that into the next set 
and then the next set. And I think when I was a kid, it was always, you know, the, the, the holy grail was to play a set of sort of Mizuno blades. It's like that was just mm-hmm. what you did. I was English, Nick Faldo, legend, got to yeah. play blades. It is what it is. And, you know, I, I set myself handicapped goals to get to that point. I still haven't got that set in Zoom. <laughs> You're not good enough. No, yet. exactly. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think it was a good way of doing it. And as a kid, you can, you can act to that. You, you've got to have a certain goal. And I think as a consumer, you, you've got to look and have those goals as to what do you want to play? Well, I want to play a set of 750s. Okay, well, what do you want to do? What are you trying to do? And if you're answering that you want to be a good shaper and you, you want to keep the ball down in the wind, so, well, maybe 750s are for you. But if you're not, then, you know, we should look at something bigger. And I think that is also how technology has come on massively. Like 790s now, we've got Rose playing three and four iron yeah, in those. Yeah, saw that. I mean, that, that, that club is, it's a really nice looking game improvement club. We're it not is, talking yeah. about going back to playing a set of, you know, I shouldn't say, but, you know, clumpers. We're not talking about 1995 and here you go, pal, game improvement, off you go. It doesn't work like that. I mean, the game improvement irons now, much to the guys, Tomo Bystead in here, who's, who's, I think, had a huge piece in designing them, they look awesome. And he has spent a long time making them look awesome. And then when you put the technology in them, I mean, they go like rockets. We've hit rockets. them as well, and they, yeah. they do go like a rocket, no don't they? No-brainer. Rockets. So look, you, you obviously you're very lucky enough to spend some time with the, some of the best players in the world, watching them hit balls on the range and, and seeing what they produce in terms of data. Would you say, maybe it may be a difficult question because they're all different, would you say, um, let's rewind up a little bit actually, when we're coaching somebody, it's often that we find that you might see someone who's an amazing driver of the golf ball, but because they're an amazing driver of the golf ball, they might struggle with their irons. Would you say that you notice any trends on the tour with... Um, let's say with some of the data, any uh, good drivers of the golf ball and any good iron uh, players. So is, yeah, there, is there anything that you see that's consistent with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a Lathabal would be the absolute obvious one. Yeah. Um, obviously, like we said, I've been doing this a long time. A Lathabal was someone I met a, lo- a, a long time ago now. At the end of his career, would be fair to say, in the last four or five years. Um, but, I mean, what an iron player. I could stand and watch him hit irons all day. I could watch him pitch all day and and chip all day. And he works so hard at it. And bear in mind, I'm catching him at the end of his career and he's still working super hard. Now, let's go back to the generation thing. There's a guy who didn't have, when he grew up, all access to monitors and and stuff that we've spoken about. So he becomes a little one-dimensional because he's a fantastic iron player, fantastic short game. And he wins superb, superb tournaments, couple of majors off the back of it, unbelievable, awesome. Then you switch it to modern day Rory. Rory is different level at all of it. I mean, it's you can stand and watch him hit driver is a joke, and then stand and watch him hit three irons is ridiculous. Stand and watch him hit wedges, and he's pretty damn good too. Yeah. And I think that there's someone who is aware of a lot more than maybe what he lets on, because remember he's trying to play. And I think if, if I take some of my experiences from trying to play, I wanted to learn more about every part of the game. And I think that some of these guys, like a Rory, a Day, DJ for sure, they know trackman numbers. They know what to look for in the golf swing. They know. Yeah. They just let on that they don't know yeah. because they do a fantastic job of making it that, okay, I need to know this. I don't need to know that. Yeah. Again, it's getting rid of the noise to make yeah. them win majors and play fantastic golf. So I think at the end of the day, um, I think nowadays there are players who cross over and are good at, at everything, Rory being one. 
Um, Justin's a great driver of the golf ball, but he's also a great iron player as well. I think Day is a fantastic driver of the golf ball when he's on. He chips and pitches a certain way as a result of his technique, but you don't see it as much when we're talking about world-class players. Yeah, the best are generally all-rounded, aren't yeah. they? But I think, like you say, it's probably a result of actually knowing what's needed to produce or to be good at both of those things and maybe exactly. adjusting what they need to do with whether they've got a driver in the hand or whether they've got a you know, five-iron in the hand, really. Yeah. You know, it's obviously, you know, you've been privileged to work with these players for a long time now, some, some great players, but there must have been something, from your point of view, a, a satisfying moment when you've kind of made maybe the best fit you've ever made, you know, so the most influential fit, whether it be just one club, you know, that you've put, the players put in the bag and then won a major maybe, for instance, Yeah, a tournament. Yeah, you keep those things obviously close to you um, in terms of that you always remember them. Yeah. Um, and there were two. There was one that was very important at the time for TaylorMade that I remember. We were at a World Golf Championship in recent years, and uh, it was Wednesday before the Thursday start of the WGC. And uh, driver count was, was very important, is very important to TaylorMade. And um, effectively, we were two drivers behind on Wednesday morning. And uh, WGCs are made up of a lot of international players, mm -hmm. so I was very conscious that it was kind of on me because it, if we don't win, the Americans were, were buttoned up, we were winning on that side and it, it was international players and I, I changed two drivers, one for an Aussie qualifier and another one for an Aussie player who uh, got on through Asia. I changed two drivers literally at four o'clock on Wednesday and they, that was good because it was done in such a huge event. Yeah. Um, I think we, we turned it and we won the driver count there. Going back even further, I remember I arrived at the Thailand Open on a Monday, 21 drivers behind, and we won that count. So you've, you've switched a lot of players in two and a half days. Mm -hmm. But that is a different type of fitting and a different type of scenario to then you flip it to where I'm at now, working with some of the best players and uh, in the world and, and majors. And obviously for me as well, like I told you, I still put goals in that... I would have had if I'd have made it as a player and I want to influence some guys in majors and, and have just a small piece of that of course I do and uh, one that rings out for me and, and the first one that I would say I was involved with in terms of winning a, a major for a, helping a player obviously I didn't win the major but yeah. helping the player win the major you know that last person didn't you? <laughs> I'm not claiming any of that. <laughs> Anyway, helping the player and over years, I think, have built a great relationship with this guy was Martin Keimer. And we were in Madrid and it was his first major, um, USPGA, Wisconsin, and it was R9 Super Try. And the TaylorMade truck hadn't gone to Madrid, so I put together a Super Try R9 on the Mizuno truck, not our truck. So the gauges were all a little bit different, which is crucial when it's a crucial piece of information when you're working with players of like that, because obviously I needed the spec of this thing. And I'm putting it together, it was a Fabuki shaft, I think it was 9.5 measuring like 9.3, face angle 0.3 open, or maybe a little more than that. A uh, little under standard, swing weight was sort of D3, and he hit this thing, and he, 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 at that time he was very negative with uh, attack angle. And the Trackman as well wasn't what it is now, so we're going off of the Trackman early edition, and he likes to hit fade, and this thing couldn't draw, but obviously we're going with a shaft that launched it a bit higher than what he had to use something that was super poker. So we've gone for something that launched a bit more because he wanted to get rid of some of the cut 
and I remember sort of putting the final tweaks on it and then I had to get a flight so I didn't fully see it and he put it in play that week, played well, don't know where he finished, went on, went to Wisconsin, won the major and I remember years after, maybe as early as two years ago, I sort of said something to him about it and said something to him about that major and, and he straight away said, he, he knew, he's like that driver you know, you built for me, he's like one of the best drivers I've ever had. And obviously I've done many drivers since for Kaima, but that one, if I had to put one, just because it was the first one I felt in my, and I, I'd been at this then for maybe six, seven years, but it takes a long time to get yeah. to that level. And that one was maybe the one where you're like, you know what, that, I think he, he's happy with that. And yeah. I think he knows that that driver was important for helping him get that result. And I think that's what you strive for in these jobs, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's the, that's the personal satisfaction for you. Yeah. Ultimately, you're, you're doing it to, to get these players playing their best. And if they're winning a major with something that you've contributed to, then it's a great feeling for you to have. That's what, why you do what you do. Awesome. Okay, right. I mean, a couple more questions then, Chris. Um, ultimate golfer. So let's, let's go through, we've asked a lot of people this, that ultimate goal for the players that you've worked with, the best driver, the best iron player, the best wedge play, short game, and putting that you've seen. So driver would be Rory. Um, I mean, and it, if you could put anyone else with him, it'd be DJ, but either of those two would be quite happy with that. Iron player, I'd take a lap about just because big fan, think he hits yeah. it, awesome. Um, wedges... Again, Alathabal would be in there. Short game would be someone like a Shane Lowry, just because he's got superb feel when you're watching chip and pitch. And early on, I was sort of around Seve a little bit, but it was right at the start. I mean, I'd have, I'd have obviously put him in there. But can you, you know, Lowry is again modern day, great feel, great touch, uh, great to watch. And then putting. I mean, nowadays, there's a lot of analytics that fly around. So you could piece together someone statistically who's yeah. unbelievable. You could do that. And, and I, I guess I, I know the stats on a lot of this, but Luke Donald, Matt Fitz, Jason Day, it depends what distance you're talking about. Yeah. But they'd be modern day guys that you'd put in there. Um, and then something that we haven't spoken about, which I feel like is something that your listeners would be interested in because it's a big part of this is, I, I mentioned earlier I had a small time at Adams and as a result of that I got to meet and work with Watson and Langer. I think if I could have Tom Watson's grit and bear in mind I'm working with him when he's 60 plus but that guy is, you know, he's a competitor. Yeah. I think I'd, I'd have his grit for sure in all that and then just Langer's attention to detail. Yeah. I mean that guy is... Sounds like a good goal for that. Yeah. <laughs> Bernard Langer talk about having to be on your game. I mean, I, I learned some things doing equipment with him that having been in this industry for a long time, they, they were new to me. And, and you had to get them bang on. And it, it you know, he, it, it doesn't surprise me when you, you listen, you watch the Golf Channel, you listen to what people say about him on there and obviously his achievements past 50. But then when you actually get to meet him and work with him and I'd met him before but when you get to work with him and you see what goes in to getting just any club even if it's just a 52 degree wedge is going to go in his bag when you see what's involved with getting that 52 degree wedge in the bag if every tour player was like that it would be yeah. a yeah. serious task it would be yeah. a very tough job I mean you know if you get a club in Langer's bag that it's yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, bit of work went behind it. Okay, let's let's give you one more question. Just I know we've spoke about this a little bit, but just to actually give it the you know, for someone who's listening here, exactly what's the minimum they should 
prepare for and ask for when they're having a fitting. So what is the one, you know, what are the, the couple of steps that they need to take when going for a fitting? Do they need to prep the fitter beforehand? Absolutely. I think if, if it's like anything. If you're going into it, if we take this, if we've done this down to your average golfer, I think they're going to be quite nervous, first mm, of all. Of course. Because these fitting suites are intimidating. There's some great point of sale material on the walls. Maybe there's some pictures of some icons. I mean, back when I was at the Belfry, there was McGinley's winning putt. And I went in every day and sort of worked under the shadow of that. And to me, going in there every day, you become used to it. And that becomes your environment. But for a guy coming in, who, or for a girl, who's coming in to buy products, obviously they see that and they're like, oh, and then it's not their range, and it's not their range balls, it's not their mat, it's not what they're used to, or turf. The tee heights are different, or, you know, there are a lot of things. So go in and, and just take your time. That's the first thing. Yeah. You, you've got an allocated amount of time. Maybe take five, ten minutes just to get comfortable and go through it you know start with your wedges do your routine that your coach will have gone through with you pick your targets don't just hit it out onto the open range then start and if the fit is any good they'll do this start to build your fairway start to build your picture on the range in front of you before you've even got to driver then you've got to start asking questions you know you've, you've got to be prepared explain to the fitter which they should go through but what your goals are as a golfer. What are you doing there? Do you just want a brand new driver out the wrapper because you want to go and tell your mates, say this is awesome and this is what I've got? Or do you actually want the right product for you that's going to work for you as you work on whatever you're working on? And list out what it is. Now, as you become a better player, you'll start to understand what you like. And I think it's the same as when you have golf lessons. You have to take notes of what you're doing because those notes are going to stay relevant. So you've got to be able to take the notes and you've got to be able to go in and be like, okay, my last lesson had this, take them to the fitting and take notes away from the fitting. So when you leave the fitting and you go back for an update, maybe two years later, you know what you liked. I liked stiff in the tip. I liked this kind of grip. I like this face angle. I like this swing weight. Do I even know what swing weight is? Know what you like. And as you become better again, be comfortable playing what you like. So it, bring it back to a tour example, Darren Clark, being a tailor-made guy for a long time, used the same grips for as long his whole life. Now, they don't really make those grips anymore, no. but they make them for Clarky because he likes those grips. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? 58 layers underneath as well. Yeah, four and a half layers, but yeah, you know what I mean? And he likes a very heavy driver. I mean, I worked with, years ago, Tom Weiskopf, just for some of your older listeners. And, I mean, the younger guys will have to Google him. But you, you, you work on a driver. It's the first time I'd worked with a guy of that generation. He was the first one. But Watson was the same. Langer was the same. Heavier swing weights, heavier shafts. It's all stuff they played with. And as you become a better player, to keep it in line with the question here, understand what you like. I mean... I think I know for me what a good golf club looks like. And I think I know for a good player what a good golf club looks like. But I also understand that there are people who have a different opinion to me. And like what Langer likes, I personally don't like the look of that. But his generation, that's what he grew up on. That's why he uses it. Watson was the same. And I think as you get into the stuff I like is more with the modern day player because the more they've grown up through my generation. So... Rory stuff you, you could put together without seeing him and you'd know he's going to like it. Jason Day, same. Justin yeah. Rose, they like stuff that is of my generation. As a, as a consumer going in for a fit, if you decide that you like something with high torque and, and you've done your research on it, stick to that. If it's not the most expensive shaft in the rack, that's okay. 
If it's not the most expensive grip in the rack, that's okay. Just know what you like. I mean, I remember we had a situation with uh, KJ Choi, changed his grips at the Open once at Troon, and we had to weigh 150 grips just to find 14, uh, 13 grips that were 58.3 grams. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous, but if that's what he likes, that's what he's got to do. what we've got to do. Yeah, you know what I mean? exactly it is what, what it is. And, uh, you know, it, it took a long time. But I'm not saying get that deep, but... <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, you've got to get all your grips weighed. <laughs> okay, right, before we finish the podcast, um, well, great information there, I think, for, yeah, the, absolutely. The, for the listeners at home, because I think it is intimidating when they go for a fishing, but I think, like you say, if they can just be honest and say what they like and, and be prepared to, you know, put that out there, they're going to experience a better fitting as well. Um, we always finish the podcast with a quote, Chris. I know you've said one earlier, I don't know whether you wasted that earlier, but um, before we do, we've got the most important question of the day. Every time we come over here, we tend to have a game with you and Blackie. What's your predictions on our next match? Well, I think you've done so well, haven't you, <laughs> just to get past the uh, 13th these last couple of games. So, look, I mean, what, 14th? 14th. <laughs> I, think it was, was it, I think it was 16th last time. Yeah. I think something like that. Something like I can't that, remember. Yeah. But, we, yeah, we need to produce a bit more better, better golf next time. Okay, so a uh, quote, Chris. If you've got one, if you've got a favourite quote, just to share with the listeners at home that you live by or you like... Um, feel free to I think look I, I'm not a huge quote guy but there are a couple of things that over time have stuck with me and the James Lights one was one you know why why guess what you can measure and that was very relevant or is very relevant to my job and and what you guys do I mean yeah. as as technology moves on why would we guess what we can measure and I think yeah. that's a good point and then you know I think very early on in my life, my old man worked pretty hard and uh, he sort of said to me, he used to come in sometimes early in the morning and he'd bang on the door, he'd be like, come on, get up, go up, you've got to get going. It's like, he'd sort of say to me that success isn't just going to come to you, you've got to get up and you've got to work hard at it. And I think that stuck with me. And obviously I took great pride then through my sort of teenage time, getting up, going early to the golf course to practice before school and things. So just, it's not going to come to you and you've got to work at it. And I think that, you know, we know that because we've known each other a long time. You know, I've seen your path, what you've, you've taken a risk, so to say, at the start, which people now turn around and, and say, hey, those guys are doing this and that. And, it, and it, in, I wouldn't, I, I can't believe I'm saying this to your faces, but... <laughs> it's not going to be it, nice to us, is it? It's <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? I just recorded. <laughs> I, I think at the end of the day, you've worked hard at it. And I think that it, it, it's, it's not a quote as such, but... You've got to work hard at something and you've got to commit to it. And if you commit on a path and you work hard, eventually it works out. And it's the same if we bring it back to a listener who's reaching out, listening to a podcast or following what they find online from you guys or any other coach out there, be it Gigi or whoever. At the end of the day, you've got to commit to a method if it's the golf swing. You've got to commit to a teacher. You've got to commit to a fitter. You've got to commit if you're going to go this deep to a diet. You've got to commit to practicing. You've got to put time in there. Maybe you've got a family. You've got to find the time. You've got to putt at night. Like we did some stuff with a, I can't mention his name, but a top player, top 10 player here a week ago. And he, he dropped in that he was hitting 200 putts a night on a training aid in the hotel room. And I'm sat there thinking every night, so he's playing the PGA Tour week in, week out, and around the world. He's hitting 200 putts on a training rail every night before he's going to bed. Well, I don't know if anyone's been on those training rails, but if you miss putt number 199, yeah. you're going to be 
pretty tough because you're gonna have to start again, you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, that's commitment, he's working hard at it, and I think that that is the same for life and the same for golf and the same for whatever sport or ever activity you choose. It, it doesn't just come to you, you know? Perfect. That's awesome. the longest quote we've had so far. <laughs> uh, but no, great, yeah, Chris, thanks so much for your time. It's been great to just hear a little bit of behind the scenes of what happens on tour, what your job is all about. <clears throat> so thanks for giving up your time. Excuse me. Um, so yeah, I mean, thanks ever so much. Thanks for great having to me. See Very you. good. No Keep doing it. All. Cheers, boys. And uh, guys, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. There we have it, another fantastic guest on the Take Charge podcast. Now, we need your help to reach as many golfers around the world as possible, so please leave a review and rate this podcast. Let us know what you think. And also, if you want us as your personal online golf coaches, make sure you head over to meandmygolf.com. Loads of fantastic videos there to help you take charge of your game. Thanks for listening, guys.